welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 689. I'm your host, Jim McDowell. With me from the UK is Rich Jowett. Rich, how are things in the UK tonight? Yeah, very good. Thank you, Jim. Good to see you again after your holiday sojourn. Great to uh, weekend of racing behind us. So yeah, really looking forward to our chat tonight. Yeah, fantastic weekend of racing, actually. I mean, there's so many superlatives that you could use for that racing. It truly is great. But let's get some housekeeping done here first, then we'll jump right into it. Hey, we want to thank everybody who's been supporting the show, who is a donator. So a big shout out to Keith Kovac, Nick Saban, Scott Saunter, Alan Fleming, Dennis Kidling, our, our friends at Patreon, and our new friend at Patreon, Hudson Cooper. Thank you very much, Hudson, is for becoming a subscriber to the show. Joshua Tutel, Carl Marsh, Monk, Gary Shavit, Steve, and Paul Lang. If you get the show on iTunes, if you could go there, leave us a review, rate us. That'll be great because that way that'll be a way for people to find us. It'll change the algorithm, put us back to the top of the list. We'd greatly appreciate it. And for anybody who's actually left a review, we really appreciate you having done that as well. With that, I think we'll get to the news, Rich. So mm. we'll start off here with the first little bit of news. As of today, which is April the 5th, there is no word whether Mark Marquez will actually ride at Coda, though he's been out testing a bike. My personal feel is, Rich, he's not well enough to ride yet. I would tend to agree with that. I think the silence this late in the day, because bearing in mind he'd be needing to jump on a plane probably latest tomorrow, I would think. I mean, I guess there's a possibility that he might fly out in the hopes that the condition continues to improve, but there hasn't really been any word. And that's understandable because it's a private medical matter at the end of the day. But the, yeah, the silence is kind of ringing quite loud now, I think. So I'm with you. I think probably the likelihood is that he's not going to make this one. No, I do think he's going to come back. I do think he will race again. From what I have read, seen, heard, it isn't as bad as what he suffered in December timeframe. Mm, yeah. So he should recover, get in rest and time and be able to go again. I'm concerned that he doesn't have too many more of these type of impacts left. We talked about it last show. Yeah. That R word is going to be there. This kind of rolls in with it just a little bit because I was going to maybe say this during the MotoGP portion of the show, but has anybody missed Rossi? I'm sorry. Rossi was great. I'm not trying to put Rossi down, not cutting him under the rug. He had a fantastic career, but the gracing is so good. The level of competition is so good. You're not really thinking that Rossi's not there. The, The same could be said of Marquez to some extent. Yes, I think we all marvel at the slides, the recoveries, the front end pushes and all that that he does that is amazing on a motorcycle yet the racing is still so good it's just as good with him not there as it is with him there it would be like i don't know adding whipped cream to a sunday or something right it's it's just that a little bit better but it's just fantastic what we have right now it is it's slightly different i guess the rossi thing in the sense that he was clearly at the end of his career and he probably hung around a couple of seasons too long but i haven't watched one race this year and thought oh rossi's not in it you know that thought hasn't occurred to me and equally in what was a great very compelling moto gp race at the weekend i didn't kind of stop and think oh i wish marquez was here it just didn't cross my mind so the problem for mark will be is if he is forced into retirement then the guys are getting cut down when he's still relatively in his prime and that would obviously be very sad but like you jim you start to wonder how many more impacts he can afford to have really for his own sort of long-term health and well-being and equally from a slightly mercenary angle hrc must be starting to feel the pinch on this one as well because you know they have a rider and a bike let's call it a really good bike we don't know quite how good the new honda is yet which could be being used by another rider consistently weekend in weekend out and the problem for them at the moment is that mark might have to disappear two or three times a season for two or three races and that's not a way to win a constructors championship no definitely not so a lot there on with the 
theory of people who may or may not be at CODA. John McPhee has been ruled out with his ongoing broken vertebrae. They're healing. It is not enough time for him to be on the motorcycle. Again, I think that's one of these things that John needs to take his time. He needs to be 100% when he gets back on a motorcycle. Yeah, I know he needs to be sort of in the window. This is his last year for Moto3. He needs to be in the window to get that Moto2 ride. But all John needs to do is really basically have a few good rides at the end of the year, be near the front consistently for a few rides. I'm pretty sure he'll get a Moto2 ride from someone. Yeah. So that's that part of it. There. And Sasaki's doing a good job in the on the other bike as well. So that will oh, be yeah. giving John a lot of comfort in the sense that the bike, the package, the team is good. We know that. So when he is fit and able to come back, you would expect him to be able to get fairly close to that front group. As you say, Jim, put himself back in the shop window for next year. So there was a huge amount of panic going into Argentina because the freight never showed up. Apparently there were mechanical issues with the aircraft that were being used to transport the freight. And part of it I didn't understand was some freight went westward across the Pacific and some went eastward across the Middle East, Africa to Argentina, to Brazil, to Argentina. I thought that was a little bizarre that they kind of went in different directions, but maybe it's different companies. I don't know the deal, but there was no action on Friday. Teams were there, but their bikes weren't there. Equipment wasn't there. It seemed as though Dorna moved heaven and earth to get the parts that were needed to fix the aircraft in question. Uh, there were parts sent from the US, parts sent from Middle East or Europe that went in case of whatever it was that was broke. If it didn't work, you know, there was another one coming to make sure it would work kind of a thing. They were talking about how a lot of the teams were up very early in the morning, call it like, what was it? 12 midnight, basically getting equipment, bringing it into the track, setting up their pit stalls, putting bikes together. And then we practiced, we qualified on Saturday and we raced on Sunday. The question is, do we really need a three day race event? Discuss. <laughs> You know, I've never really thought about this from the standpoint of doing it everything in two days. There's been a lot of the chat of that in Formula One per se. You know, do we really need the three days? Do we need people just running around the track? The simulation of the car is so good in the computer that we know the tracks, we know what setup we got to put on the car, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And my feeling in MotoGP personally is I like the Friday session. I like three days. I like it from the standpoint of that you get to see practice and everybody trying different things, different lines, things of that nature. I think it allows for a lot of of track time for the younger riders, the guys that are in Moto3 or the talent comp guys get some track time on those bikes. They get the time that they need to develop and learn because these guys are young. They're 16, 17, 18 years old. They need seat time on a bike. The only way they're going to get it is at testing or at the practice day. I do think that it can be overwhelming for the younger set being there only two days and jumping right into the race. But that's my thoughts. Rich, I you probably get a thought on this as well well yeah i mean the whole thing we could spend a whole show just talking about what happened last weekend but i mean i don't suppose there's ever been a spike in flight tracking apps like there was last weekend with people kind of obsessing as to whereabouts in the world or in the air these planes were so it was rather extraordinary it did really feel like a bit of a perfect storm of things going wrong uh, and extreme circumstances at either end in terms of where the tracks are based because of course we know that the mandalika track is really very remote from a, the main international airport the same is certainly true of the track in Argentina so it's logistically challenging anyway and this does rather expose the problem with the bulging calendar that we have with more races being talked about and the fact that it doesn't take much for the system to catastrophically break down but I actually hopefully a few people might have seen it because my Twitter following is very very gradually going up but I put a tweet out I think on Saturday morning saying do we need three-day meetings I mean like you Jim it's great to go to the Friday practice it's generally the quieter of the three days obviously so you perhaps get a little 
little bit better access but it's kind of just part of the routine so if we're anti-change you don't like the idea of it but the benefits of a two-day meeting accepting what you've just said about given particularly the younger riders track time which is an extremely valid point but I suppose the upside is that the less practicing they do the little bit more volatile and unpredictable things might be and that's usually I think for the betterment of the racing and there's also a kind of albeit a relatively minor one I suppose but there are some minor cost and carbon footprint gains in running two days rather than three and again we have to consider that these teams are under massive pressure the personnel in terms of the amount of time they spend away so taking one day off each race meeting if you've got a 21 22 or more calendar kind of series would benefit those people as well in terms of having another day at home so there are lots of pros and cons to this discussion and I'd be really interested to know what the Motopod listeners kind of think about it because I'm sort of in one sense I'm not in favour of it for the reasons that you've just made and because I'm so wedded to the idea that these meetings have always been three days so we mustn't change that but equally I can see some upsides if it was to change right there is a cost savings for the teams two days less hotel time two days less food that's required to feed everybody etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah i don't know I'll, I'll really be interested in what everybody else thinks so go to a motopod at motopodcast.com let us know what you think about a two-day grand prix weekend as opposed to a three-day grand prix weekend i mean as long as the price for a ticket doesn't go up for the two-day just because it's only two days yeah you know, <laughs> uh, that i'd be okay with that too i just have to say jim as well i mean chapeau to the mechanics and all the team personnel and so on they must have got through a hell of a lot of this espresso and strong coffees uh, working through yeah. the night but my, I have to tell you my bike cleanliness OCD went into overdrive when I learned that the bikes after the Mandalika race after the wet races were immediately packed up and put onto the shipping crates and stuff because it was such a tight logistical schedule so those bikes turned up as they finished the race so they spent two weeks completely covered in grime and dirt and rubber and god knows what and that really sent my OCD into overdrive <laughs> Mm, yeah. Some World Superbike news. The finals test has concluded at Aragon ahead of round one this weekend. Ray was just ahead of, uh, how's that, Rich? You can say it, I can't. Top rack Razgatti or glue. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it takes a bit of practice, that one. Yeah, then Bautista. Gerloff was fourth. So, um, Rich will be trying to get some insights from Greg Haynes from Eurosport next week. I'm looking forward to that. Those are always great chats, Rich. I love yeah. all of them. Well, what Greg had said he would do is that he might, from time to time, particularly if there's a, a really good race as well, he'll just sort of send in a little kind of WhatsApp voice message which might be a sort of four or five minute just a quick breakdown so we can just drop it into the show as a little kind of here's what happened and this is what greg thought Mm -hmm. yeah perfect again i love your chats with him i really do so there's also real interest in super sport this year because the rules for world super sport have changed as some of you already know they are allowing the ducati 955 pinagalli v2 triumph street triple 765 and mv augusta's new 800 cc f3rr are all allowed in the super sport championship and quite honestly i think that's great because the different sound that each of these bikes make is one of the most wonderful things there is about racing. You know, you there is a difference between a V4 and G- MotoGP as opposed to an inline four, but those Triumph triples have a sound all to themselves in Moto2 that is fantastic. So from the engineer, sound guy, person that I am, can't wait for that. It will be really good. And Moto America is doing the same thing where they've allowed the Pentagali 955, the Triumph Street Triple in running old GSXR 750s are allowed to all be in super sport. Um, that was with my interview from Greg White. So I'm interested in that as well because very different sounds from all the bikes, which would be really good. And the British Championship is following suit as well. So this is hopefully going to reinvigorate the sort of middleweight super sport 
championship as it's generally known in all of these series uh, and it's much needed because it's become a bit of an inline four Yamaha Cup in recent years yeah there have been a few Kawasaki's in there as well it's true to say but as you say just the sheer variety of different noises and stuff I think is going to be really great from a spectating point of view particularly if you're at the track so yeah I'm really looking forward to that and I, I don't know if all of those models are going to be in straight away but certainly the rules have been opened up in such a way that many many more bikes and engine configurations and I would imagine there'll be some weight uh, limit changes around what you're running as well that will feed into that as well so yeah I'm very excited and I must just pick a bone with you actually Jim sure you've now got me hooked on yet another podcast I know I'm listening every week to Greg's Garage Pod as well which is brilliant I have to say after your interview with him so yeah Yeah. it's really really enjoyable much uh, recommended to the listeners that one yeah Greg's podcast with um I lost uh Jason Pridmore Pridmore. it is it's very very good yeah well worth listening yep well worth listening if you have the time Rich the last news is from BSB so won't you please tell us about that yeah well I had planned to go up to Don last week for what was going to be the penultimate winter or pre-season test anyway but much according to type the British weather intervened and it was barely above freezing and it was snowing fairly heavily most of the day so a lot of the teams didn't actually they kind of elected to pull out because it was only a one-day test in any case so a few guys were there but I don't think much meaningful data was gathered so tomorrow and Thursday this week the teams are at Silverstone for what will be the final testing sessions so I'm hoping to go to Silverstone on Thursday albeit the Silverstone circuit and their beautiful website is conspiring to do everything possible to stop me from being able to achieve that aim. I was going to have a massive rant about it, but I don't want to get sued. So, but we'll leave that one for another day. But anyway, round one gets going the following weekend, which is starting off on Friday, the 15th of April. And for anybody that listened to the chat that I put out yesterday with Steve Day, who's moved across from the Dorna MotoGP coverage and is now going to be Eurosport's lead commentator for BSB. The discussion I had with him really does show that the BSB speed championship this year is going to be mega bit like MotoGP I suppose in many respects you just cannot really predict who's going to win who's going to be on the podium so really looking forward to BSB kicking off and I will be as I've said many times aiming to get to quite a few of the races this year and stick the old microphone under as many people's noses as possible and see what people think on the ground sounds fantastic well you ready to talk about Argentina now I think we should oh sorry no there was one more thing sorry Jim uh, Taz McKenzie reigning British Superbike champion has got a wild card at the upcoming Aston World Superbike round so although we were or I was certainly bitching and moaning about the fact that he didn't manage to get a full-time World Superbike ride, at least the McCams Yamaha squad. And it's not easy for them because, of course, the rules are different in terms of the electronics on the bikes. There's very little electronic interference in the BSB rules, whereas in World Superbike, it's a much more complicated electronic setup. But uh, anyway, so yeah, Taz will be at the Assen round. I think it's round two. It's around about the 22nd, 23rd, 24th of April, I think. So that's something for the British fans to look forward to and for Taz McKenzie, of course. So yeah, anyway, Argentina. Argentina. So everything being compressed, we'll compress this a little bit here with the qualifying. Moto3 qualifying was fairly interesting. The point was that I think what Sasaki was in that first session and he came through that pretty quickly. There was also Joe Kelso came through, which was good for the Aussie. He looked yeah. very strong. A lot of people that we didn't not used to seeing at the front kind of were at the front, uh, but it's always down to the very end in Moto3 qualifying. Who's going to be the sort of the last person to get across that line? And with all that said, it was Sergio Garcia grabbing the pole on the gas gas as our team. Then it's Sasaki, Ethan Guevara, Rossi Kelso, as mentioned, who was looking very good, was fifth. Holgado on the KTM, IO bike, sixth. Artigas, Mino, Suzuki, which I thought Suzuki would be better. Again, that's Leopard. That's the Honda. This is a track with a pretty long straightaway. I thought the Hondas would be quick, but more importantly than it was a Morera and then Fagia. So Fagia just cracked the 11th. He couldn't even get into the top 10, having been already moved into the second qualifying session, which I thought was interesting. I thought, you know, 
Faggio, I thought would have been a lot quicker there. But what I couldn't remember if Faggio had ever raced at Argentina, but I believe that he has. Yeah. Because it's been a couple of years, but I think Faggio has been in the class longer than that. Yeah. Then it was Masia who had won previously in Argentina. Yeah. Was very far down on the KTM. Like it seemed to be very odd. Like that's out of place or out of character for him. Then Toba, Yakanama, Ortella, Anchu having a very tough time because I knew Anchu had never been there. Maybe he couldn't quite get the dots connected, but I was looking for big things to happen for Anchu because I expect him to sort of get it together and charge through the pack perhaps. So there, then Nepa and Tatai being the 18 bikes that were in that second qualifying session. We get to the race and... It's a pretty mild Moto3 race, I would say, for the vast majority of it. Fairly well-behaved, yeah. Okay, better put, well-behaved. The two gas-gas bikes jumped out front, and it looked like both of them were going to work together. We heard from Simon Crayford that they were going to work together, yet somehow they didn't want to work together. They Imagine that. (laughs) But they didn't want to work together. But they did try to pull away from that. Now, it must be said that Sasaki started well, but he had to take a long left penalty due to the infractions that he had in the race in uh, Mandalika. So he was forced to take along the penalty. So the question was, well, where would Sasaki eventually wind up? You know, into the first, I think he did it on the third lap. He took the long lap and he got through there. Again, Garcia and his teammate Guevara are out front and they're sort of running away with this and they're having a very good go of it. But that second group of people that was in there with sort of Suzuki, Tatai, Toba, Moreno, Holgado, they all were switching it up back and forth, back and forth. All of them were riding well, but they couldn't quite get it together to catch the two guys out front. Fagia was way down in like 11th. He was very far back, which is surprising to me that he was that far down. I was really wondering if he was struggling, but everybody was on the same tires. So there was really not a lot going on at that point. However, we finally did get to the interesting things that started to happen, that being the Masia and Migno connection in that final turn. It seemed as though everybody who was making time was making it going into the final corner by taking the inside line and breaking on that straight portion of it, they were beating anybody who was taking the wider line to the apex. And basically, we have Mino who got optimistic trying to get through Masia because by this time, they had reeled in the front two Aspar machines. And we had that traditional call it 10 people pack of Moto3 riders who were behaving, as you correctly said, Rich. Mm -hmm. But then the correction stopped. (laughs) The niceness (laughs) fell away. Mino was a little aggressive, I think, going into that corner and wind up knocking Masia down. Down. And then Masia's on the ground. Masia gets up, or Mino's trying to get his bike up, and he kind of, you know, gives him the whole, hey, what did you think you were doing? And Mino ignores him and gets on the bike. Masia gets on his bike, they take off. Mino's bike won't restart. So he's walking through pit lane when Masia comes back around to retire his motorcycle. And again, Mino kind of gives him, well, what were you doing? The stewards looked at that as a racing incident. And I'm wondering what you think about that one. I think turn 13 is just one of those gnarly turns that encourages this sort of an incident. And we would see this in the Moto2 race as well. Almost a, not quite the same outcome, but almost an identical build up to what happened. You know, you just go in there a wee bit hot, go a wee bit offline, and it just encourages somebody to cut underneath you. And if you're getting back onto line, having gone wide, then the chances are, with your sort of restricted vision, looking out of a visor slightly, contact is almost inevitable in, in some of these races. And that's what we saw across the weekend, really. And we've seen it 
there before as well. I was particularly interested in what happened, which is very similar in the Moto2 race, because I think the call that race direction made, I would say is correct in both cases, but it is rather at odds with a similar incident somewhere else. So we'll touch on that later on. But yeah, I thought it was a racing incident, to be honest. I mean, it was very unfortunate, but that corner just tends to invite those sorts of problems. Personally, I think Mina should have been penalized or should be penalized for the next race with a long lap. I say that because I felt that as the rider approaching, which Mino was, he has to understand and be aware of who is around him when he's trying to make that pass. Had the motorcycles been closer to being even, I felt like, let me put it this way, I felt like Mino only got to the rear wheel of Masia. Had he been to the gas tank, to more to that peripheral vision that Masia would have had, I would have gone racing incident. I would have instituted a uh, long lap penalty. And that's my reasoning for that one. Yeah, I mean, I think of the two, between the Moto3 and the Moto2 incidents, which I'd say were very, very similar, I would say that Mino was the most guilty of everybody because, yeah, mm-hmm. I think his front tyre pretty much rammed into the elbow of Masia, didn't it? So, and that yeah. started off the chain reaction that took them both down. Clearly, he thought that he wasn't in the wrong, but then do riders ever think anything different? Because he was busy shaking his arm and fist at Masia as he rode past him going into the pit. So, yeah, I couldn't quite remember what race direction had concluded on that particular incident. So, it was a racing incident then no further action. I think Mino was on balance quite lucky with that although I call it a racing incident just because I think that as I say that corner is just invites those sorts of problems so but it was touch and go and I don't necessarily disagree with your point of view Jim to be honest. By this point, we get done sort of dealing with the extracurricular activity of Mino and Masia, and as if by magic, Foggia has now showed up at the front. Like, it was like 12 to go or something like that, and Foggia just suddenly shows up at the front. Like, he was literally the fastest man in that final sector. He was gaining hand over fist on the brakes, going to 13 on almost everyone, and Foggia was suddenly planted himself at the front, or very near to the front. You know, he was expected where he should be. It was then that heartbreak appeared for Ethan Guevara as the Aspar bike gave up the ghost. Now, I think because they had on board and you could hear what the motor did, I think it was lean and it hold a piss because it sort of just gently died and did not have any power. There wasn't an abrupt stoppage of power like the transmission or a gear broke or it had jumped a chain. It could have potentially maybe snapped a cam chain or something or belt. I'm not sure what those bikes use mm. to open and actuate the valve. They could be gear driven, but I don't think so because I, I don't hear a gear whine that would be prevalent like in the RC45s, if you remember those bikes. So I think it just was lean or they were running it leaner to maybe for mileage to get there. And it got away from them a little bit and it did essentially melt down and put a hole in the piston, no more power. So I think that was unfortunate because he was definitely, I think, on for the podium at the very least. And it shows that Guevara is probably in this for the championship. So mm-hmm. we're starting to kind of see that pecking order of who's who and who's where and kind of all that part of it. At that point, though, it gets down to the battle for the lead at the end, it is between Garcia, it is between Fagia. They gonna go back and forth at each other for like the last couple of laps. Fagia has gone by. I thought for sure Fagia had this one in the bag because he had the speed with the Honda. He looked good in that final sector, but Garcia rode the last lap of his life. He made a brilliant move into turn 13. He was positioned perfectly 
perfectly to gently nudge Fadja out of the way. He actually rode around the outside of him to position himself back for the inside at 14 to win the race and beat Fadja to the line. And the best part of the whole thing was as soon as they got across the line, Fadja looked over at him and congratulated him and gave a thumbs up, which means that he was into the racing mode of it as much as anybody else. I love that when riders are that way mm. because they're as excited about the race. It didn't matter. It was a great race. They both knew it. And Fadja knew that Garcia had produced an amazing last lap to beat him in that case. Shock of all shocks. And you look at the result was unknown at the time because we were too busy watching the gas gas bikes and Fagi at the front was that Sasaki had ridden from the long lap penalty all the way back to the podium. Yep. An amazing ride for Sasaki. Again, showing how good that the Max Biagi Stelgrada team is. They are putting some high caliber equipment underneath of them and Sasaki is really grasping at that and taking that advantage and being at the front where I think he needs to be to keep himself in the window of the up and coming Japanese that are there. I mean, I think we all know that Ogura is moving maybe not this year, but he's definitely going to a ride in MotoGP that puts Sasaki sort of as the next man up for a Moto2 ride there. I thought that was really good racing. Then Rossi was able to be fourth Suzuki on the Leopard Honda. Now he was with his teammate. He had made that move to be with Fagia late in the race with like a couple of laps to go. And then he just let himself get manhandled. He tried to sort of, I don't want to say block, but he was definitely taking a defensive line there. And then when all hell broke loose, when you got through like 9, 10, 11, he just went backwards. I don't know what Leopard thinks about that because I think Leopard knows that they're going to need him to take points off of the gas gas guys. I almost had the impression with, I think with a couple of laps to go when Foggia was in the front and Suzuki was second, you almost had the impression that Suzuki was riding sort of rear gunner, but almost mm-hmm. as if that was an instruction in the team. I mean, clearly Foggia is a lot of people's favourite for the title. Certainly Mark has been mine. I think I declared that in our sort of pre-first uh, race show. But yeah, I mean, it was an immense last lap by Garcia because before the critical last corner overtake, he put in a mega move on Suzuki, in fact, going into the, now I think it's turn nine. So it's that sort of gnarly uphill left, which is off camber, a really tricky corner. And he absolutely sent it to Suzuki there. And that kind of pushed Suzuki back and kind of lined him up for Sasaki to do pretty much the same move that Garcia did on Foggia in the final turn. So they both pulled off that same move at the very end. But uh, I mean, Garcia, he got his elbows out on Sunday, didn't he? And he mm. was absolutely stellar, I thought. And so was Fodger, to be fair. But as you say, Jim, he didn't qualify terribly well. And in the first half of the race, he wasn't really anywhere much to be seen. And you were thinking, oh dear, is this the old Dennis Fodger, the one that just disappears for a weekend? But he certainly didn't. I mean, he, he almost won the race uh, and was only beaten by an absolutely clinical, so precise, brilliant overtaken move by Garcia in that final turn. It was epic, that last lap. Mm, yeah, it's one of those ones that you show your friends. Yeah. This is why you watch Moto3. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of in that vein of that good. The thing that I'm wondering about is that we have Garcia on top of the championship now. He is four points ahead of Faja. That is absolutely nothing at this point. Yeah. But I still think that Faja is going to be driven harder to win this championship than we think. Mm. Because I do think that both Garcia and Guevara have both made a step. We know Garcia was quick, having put a lot of pressure on Acosta last year 
year, but did have that crash at Coda that gave him a bruised kidney, which kept him out. We're seeing him at maybe the top of his form right now. So I'm looking for some really good races between the Gas Gas Twins and Fagia. And I think that's sort of where Leopard is like thinking Suzuki needs to be here with us because we need him to help take points off the other two. I do wonder where all the KTMs have gone as far as the you know the factory team, the IO team. Oldiger looks like a definite star of the future. He seems to be doing far better than Anchu. And Anchu is in a Tech 3 team, so let's be clear here. Masi is in the factory team with him. And you know, Masi had trouble. He was, again, Mino did knocking down. But of all the KTM guys, Holdiger seems like he's the next one. Yeah, and he's right in still with a quite a badly damaged leg as well, it must be noted. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, he's you have to say he's doing really, really well. But yeah, I mean, the IO team and Tech 3, I mean, the other rider in the Tech 3 team, who again, we've talked about this, I won't go over old ground, but is Adrian Fernandez, And it's debatable whether he really should be in that team. I think. And mm-hmm. certainly the performances so far wouldn't suggest that that opinion is too far wide of the mark. But Onchu had a good first two rounds, but just clearly something wasn't quite right in Argentina this weekend. So he'll need to, to bounce back hard if he wants to stay anywhere close to this championship. But the interesting point going forward, I think, with the Aspar team is I don't think Guevara will capitulate on behalf of Sergio Garcia in the same way that Suzuki might for Foggia. So that might be a bit of a problem because if you remember the Moto3 race at Mandalika, those two were taking lumps out of each each other and I suspect and I think somebody mentioned on the commentary that they'd had quite a talking to within the team with Jorge Martinez probably saying do not take each other out so we didn't really get to see the full outcome of that on Sunday obviously because Guevara as you say pulled out with a mechanical but that one's going to roll on a little bit I think so I think that will get quite tasty and it'll be a shame if they start to rob each other of points because if they're going to beat Fodger they need to work together really yep so let's quickly finish top 10 in points we know Garcia top followed by Fodger then Guevara Kaito Toba yeah uh, Anju, Mino, Tatai, uh, Morera, who looks good as well. He seems like he's the coming one as well. Yeah. Ricardo Rossi and then Suzuki in 10th in the points. A lot of racing left to go, but I do think it's going to be a Leopard versus the Aspar team battle from here out. Yeah. And then maybe if Holdiger uh, can get healthy, you may see him and Anju appear later this year. So something to look forward to. And you'd hope that Massia will... T- I mean, Massia is one of those riders. He's either kind of out front and nobody's going to beat him or he's just another one of those riders. You think, oh, he's going to get caught up and have a crash with somebody or on his own. And that tends to have been the pattern of his career today. He's not one of those riders that you think if he gets out front, that'll be it. It'll be gone. So yeah, Massia needs to step it up a little bit, I think. Yeah, I do think that he may not find himself in that team next year. Mm. Uh, the two bad years is not good. Is there anything else before we do get to move to the Moto2? No, I think that's Moto3 done, but it was a great race. Really, great really race. good race, as always. Always. Moto2 qualifying. Uh, let's just look at how it ended up, because I think this is fascinating. Yeah. Outiger, the 16-year-old rookie on that Bosca Cora, basically showed everybody the fast way around that place. Mm. He was phenomenal to take pole. He had haste, too, as well. It wasn't like this was like, oh, he threw together a lap. No, he threw together a lot of laps that were very consistently fast to be on the pole, followed by Augusto Fernandez, having qualified better than he usually does. I was hoping for big things from him. Arbolino, Tony the Tiger, showing his best 
best. He is leading the Mark VDS team, not Sam Lowe's at this point. I know. I'm sorry to say that, Rich. I know it hurts. I like Sam Lowe's too. But it seems like Arbolino has definitely got the bit between his teeth to prove that he can ride. And he has been showing himself well. The other person who showed very well was Arenas on the Gas Gas team as well. And for Arenas to be there, I thought that was great. But the other person who surprised me for qualifying very well was Dixon. Dixon has been on a tear qualifying with that Aspar team. It seems as though something with him and Aspar clicks that he goes. I, I don't know if it's a chemistry thing or it's just, you know, that team understands what he needs in a motorcycle more than anybody else. I don't know if you managed to listen to any of the interview that I had with Gav Emmett from BT Sport, but we chatted about Jake for a little bit. And when he turned up in Moto2, because let's not forget, Jake's got big bike pedigree. I mean, he very nearly won the BSB championship and won a lot of races in BSB. But when he turned up in Moto2, he was on the KTM chassis, which if you might recall, was not the pick of the bunch. And it was an old one as well. And I don't think it was in the best nick, according to Gav. Then, of course, he moved over to the Patronus team and sort of tore it away. He broke his wrist really, very badly. And that was almost a career-ending injury, in actual fact. And he had been showing really good form uh, just prior to that crash. So he arrives, you know, back in the Aspar team on a bang-up-to-date, good bike, top team. All the prep is there. He's fit. And he's starting to show his class again. And I think, you know, obviously it was very disappointing what happened to him in Indonesia when he sort of was... Ex- kind of expected to win the race a little bit having qualified on pole and then had a bit of an inexplicable crash so I think he was just looking to have a solid finish at this round so we'll come to that but Jake gave a really interesting 10 minute interview which is available on most of the social media platforms with Neil Hodgson so it went out on the sort of the BT Sport channel but it's available across the various platforms and he was really talking about the pressures and the mental side of it It very revealing very honest quite a brave interview to have given really and you can tell that for him it's really just about getting getting momentum, getting belief, getting that flow. And, you know, he did a really good job on Sunday in sort of starting to build on that, I think. Yep. Dixon was followed by Vietti, our championship leader. Then our previous winner, Chantra, looking good again. And then Agura, Boben Schneider, and Gonzalez in the top 10. Lowe's was 11th, then Kenneth was 12th, uh, followed then by Novara. The rookie of uh, Van Gerberg, Joe Roberts, Cameron Bobier got the 16th, but Portal Pedro Acosta was there in 17th. And at this point of the weekend, I was really wondering what has happened to Pedro Acosta. The poor guy started out with some penalties that he had in Qatar. They go to Mandalika where he had been fast. He crashed in a zone with the water and a yellow flag and had a penalty there as well. Okay, now he got to here and then I realized, you know what, he's never ridden here and he's still trying to learn the big bike, bigger bike, however you want to look at it. So I was like, hmm, I wonder what's going on with Acosta because Acosta really kind of needed a finish and, you know, qualifying that far down. I was like, we'll see what happens come race day. The interesting thing with Pedro Acosta is that he's kind of crashing quite a lot in the practice sessions and or warm up and so on. And so clearly he's exploring the limits of the bike and it's taking him a while to understand that. Whereas if you fast forward to the races, he's actually riding pretty solid races. It's just that he's having to come from a long way back. And if you look at his race performance, they're actually really good. Again, we'll come to that in a moment. But that was certainly the case in Indonesia. And I think if you remember at Qatar in the first race, he got pushed out way, way wide on the first turn. And so it was effectively dead last, but he still had a very solid finish. So although he's crashing too much and giving Nakiyo a bit of a repair, but we would rather not have, I guess that's part of learning the bike and learning the limits, isn't it? But he hasn't adapted quite as smoothly as I think we thought he would and the preseason tested suggested was going to be the case. So jury's out a little bit, but I think our aspirations for him to be a solid title contender are starting to look a bit thin, Jim, if I'm honest. <laughs> 
I agree. Two things about Acosta here. One, Simon Crayfar has stated numerous times, which I love the fact that Simon Crayfar is in the booth for qualifying and the practice sessions. And then he only is the pit lane reporter during the races. He's stated several times that these guys come up from the Moto3 bikes, which are very light, to a very heavy bike. And they do not understand the weight transfer concept and how much they can push that front Dunlap. And they do tend to throw it away a few times. That's sort of where Acosta actually is, if you think about it. The other thing with Acosta as well on this is that he's learning and you know we did pick him to be a title contender but Juan Mir never really did well on a Moto2 bike I think he may have had one podium at Coda went to the Suzuki and he's a world champion mm. so success in Moto2 does not guarantee success at the MotoGP level again Fabio Quattraro is another one he had a couple of good races on the Basca Cora at the time which was a speed up and he's a MotoGP world champion as well so yeah. let's see how this plays out I just think that you're correct we thought he was going to just come in and basically dominate and throughout the testing he kind of did but it's one of these things like hey boy you might be fast by yourself now let's go run in a pack yeah the big interest for me with Acosta will be actually does he start to iron this stuff out in the second half of the season because they don't get an awful lot of bike time you know it's not as if they're out testing hammering around tracks between race weekends so you know there's a lot of pressure on them to perform you know over the course of the practice sessions I mean we call them practice sessions but I mean they're flat out from the word go pushing so pretty tough environment to learn your trade so you would hope that in this first half of the season he gets the crashing bit done as he figures out where the limits of the bike are and how he needs to adapt his style to ride a Moto2 bike which as you say Jim is a totally different animal to what he's been used to riding for the last many many years so if he irons that out in the second half of the season yeah he'll probably be way out of the points for the championship this year but I've always said that I'm not a big fan of people that go to Moto2 and only have a season and then get taken straight up and I don't think there's going to be room for him to go anywhere in MotoGP so I suspect he will now be starting himself to look at 2023 as his year in Moto2. Good points. As the race started, Aldegar got a flyer off of the line. He was there with Vietti, who also had a very good start. Now, the two of those guys were running tooth and nail, hammer and tong out at the front, and they had put a gap on the chasing pack very quickly. The chasing pack was Arbolino, it was Arenas, it was Dixon, Chantra, and Agura, who were all in that second pack. Then we get to sort of the first moment of the Moto2 race, which is that turn 13. And is Vietti and Aldegar are going in there. They've been out breaking each other a couple of times. At, that's, I think it's five at the end of the back straightaway. They would pass each other back. Aldegar was so quick through the sweeps at nine, 10, 11, through 12. He would set up Vietti, but he would maybe go wide. Vietti would cut back underneath of him. It'd be vice versa the next lap, but they decided to try it one more time when Vietti went very, very wide in 13, way too deep. Aldegar was coming hard on the racing line. Vietti came back to him clips him the bikes kind of locked together for a moment and then literally i'm sorry it's not funny but it is interesting when it happens if you see it it's that poor Aldegar gets spun 360 degrees around the top of his motorcycle before it finally ejects him off and he goes in and bangs his head square to the pavement i believe he might have been knocked cold momentarily because at the first camera angles he did not move at all mm. i was hoping it was all just him being knocked the wind out of him from that horrendous 
horrendous looking crash. But I think he was cold for a little bit because when he got up, he kind of didn't know where he was and he needed assistance to walk himself away from the truck. He did make it back to his pits. He did seem as though he was all fine. I don't think it was like he was unconscious for like three minutes or anything like that. I think he might have been 10, 15 seconds and was back up. But it was a very hard crash that again, this time the racing stewards again said, hey, this is a racing incident. And I will agree with them at this point that that happened to be the wrong way around just because of the fact if you're Vietti, you're not looking for where Audiger is because your focus is now past that apex point. Even though you're looking sort of straight ahead with the bike, you're now focusing with your head and your eyes. You're starting to move them to find where the next apex is. And you don't expect him to have gotten to that point. They collide even, I will say, the two bikes were pretty doggone even. I admit that Vietti may have been maybe a wheel out front, but it was definitely way closer to being equal than say the Moto3 incident. So I was okay with that call. I think, what did you think, Rich? Well, I'm bursting to get a question out here for you. Sure. Yeah, yeah I could tell. I could tell. <laughs> I think if there's a question that comes to my mind here is that, as you pointed out, Jim, Vietti did clearly go in deep to that corner. So he was out wide. And as a rider, knowing which line he's meant to be on, as opposed to which line he's actually put himself onto, he must have known that he was out wide. And therefore, I do question why a quick look over his right shoulder didn't happen. Because if he had done that, he would have seen Aldegar coming through. Now, okay, he didn't know precisely how far behind other than the pit board, you know, a lap previous, because this was right at the end of the lap. So he would have had a rough idea how far behind Aldegar was. But if you go wide and open a gap like that, then you're inviting somebody to come through. So it was, I think, a racing incident, more so than the Mino Masia Moto3 collision that we were talking about earlier was. But it was an avoidable accident. And it got me thinking, I've seen this crash before or very similar situation. And I would ask you and the Motopod listeners to go back if you can and have a look at Bruno MotoGP race 2020, where you might recall Paul Despargaro on the KTM going into turn one went wide in exactly the same way. And Johan Zarco darted at the inside. Now, in that case, Despargaro came back onto the racing line. They collided because Zarco was on the line. Despargaro went down and Zarco got a, a long lap penalty for it in the race. So the famous long lap that Zarco did. Yeah, which he absolutely killed it. But it did obviously cost him a lot of time and he wasn't very happy about it. And I think a lot of people, and certainly I thought that that was an extraordinarily harsh call against him on that particular occasion. And it did rather smack on Sunday with the Aldegar Vietti incident of a lack of consistency in what were very, very similar incidents. So yeah, that was just my thought on it. And my question was, do you agree that perhaps if the Vietti had had the presence of mind just to have a quick look over his right shoulder, he would have seen Aldegar incoming? That's the only thing that I can't put together in my mind because, spoiler alert, the same thing sort of happens a few laps later after this where Vietti goes wide, but this time he does look over his right shoulder because Agura is coming and we'll get to that. I hate to mm. do a spoiler, but, but this is important to what you're talking about here, Rich. The thing I think that's missing in this one is that for me, again, I'm not on the bike, but it seems as though with the one with Ayagura, when he ran wide, Vietti, I think, could hear hear Ayagura because he wasn't as he was wide yes but he wasn't as mammothly wide as he was in the incident with Aldegar I don't think he heard another bike he heard only himself I think that's why he never looked again I'm not there this is my interpretation of what I'm thinking if I was on that bike and I did watch some onboards from Celestini and you can't really tell from those cameras of what's going on but I think it happened to do with just the sound 
and the angle was different as well too. So I also think there was a little bit of peripheral that he may have seen the shadow coming across that was Ayagura. So again, I'm not trying to defend this incident because it is very similar to what happened with Zarko. The only other thing that you could maybe say about the Zarko incident was that was at a lot higher speed, which makes that more dangerous. It's all dangerous. We all know, but there's a limited area of where you're willing or allowing yourself to be in that area that that's enough risk versus that was just over the line of too much risk. Yeah. I must say, I'm not criticising Vieta. I mean, who am I to criticise? Absolutely in no position to do that. I'm just observing and thinking that in the heat of the moment, he didn't look. Probably just mm-hmm. scrabbling to get back online. And then in a split second, contact happens. Aldergo, although it was a nasty crash, I mean, he was very lucky given the spinning top routine that he did. It was very sort of balletic in slow motion, but at full speed, or in real speed, let's say, he was very lucky he didn't get a hand caught in a wheel or in the fairing or something, because that could have been a much nastier outcome than it actually was uh, and thankfully although he was a bit dazed and confused to quote Led Zeppelin he did sort of as you say a few minutes later you saw him walking into the pit box just looking a bit sorry for himself and fed up as well he might have done but uh, overall it was an unfortunate incident that didn't end as badly as it might have done so I think we can sort of take that as a, a reasonable outcome really in the cold reflection but and I'm not even criticising race direction but I highlight the Bruno thing is just as a similar incident yeah much faster speed of contact it's true but it did result in a crash as well and therefore again I'd touched on this when I was talking with Steve Day the other day and you know he was saying in race direction I mean I said or he described it as being like a sort of a mini NASA kind of operations centre you know there's so much coming in at all times so it's hard for them to make you know totally accurate consistent calls within a few moments of an incident having happened but that did seem as a bit of a glaring kind of irregularity to me in terms of how the two things were were ruled but anyway I'd rather they ruled something as a race and incident in that scenario than giving somebody a long lap agreed otherwise it's just over governing the sport again Right. We don't want an any state of racing. That's no. for sure. It's bad enough already. Yeah. <laughs> if we go back to the race, it was kind of this deal of like, well, it's next man up. Well, Vietti's out front and who's going to come to the front? It was Chantra. Chantra was just lying, having a great race. I was worried that maybe Chantra had sort of kind of maybe lucked into the Indonesia race a little bit. He hasn't really shown not brilliance, but consistency of running at the front. There's been highs, but then lows and kind of disappears and there's you don't hear of him for four or five races. However, he was just as quick as he was previously. And there was every possibility we were looking at a two-time winner Chantra because he definitely was on Vietti's tail the whole way and really pushed Vietti along the way to get there. They had a great tussle Mm. between the two of them as well, going back and forth. The other person who was also on the fly was Ayagura. Ayagura was moving on that bike. He had it figured out. He didn't get quite the start, but he did work his way through and he had time on everybody. Again, both of the Indometsu bikes were very, very quick through that 9, 10, 11, 12 into 13 area. Chantra made up huge amounts of time on Vietti at 13. And so did Ayagura. He made up a ton of time in that section. The other person of interest was Kanet, who was riding well. Again, remember, he came from way back on the grid because he qualified quite poorly. He was 12th. Yeah. So he came on and wow, I thought Kanet's right there as well, showing some pace. But he did fall off a little bit there towards the end. Kanet would go on to miss the podium because I 
Ayagura did get by him, and it was kind of a back and forth there a little bit. Ayagura and Kanet did not have enough pace to match Vietti and Chantra out front. So the race would be decided between those two guys. It was Vietti that did win. Chantra did take second. It was a brilliant ride by Chantra as well. Ayagura nipped Kanet at the end to be sure that he would be on the podium as opposed to Kanet. Jake Dixon had sort of a lonely ride to that fifth place. I think he's going to get that elusive win here somewhere. I wouldn't bet against him at Le Mans on this bike in a rainy cold track. I really, really wouldn't. And he did hunt down Arbelino towards the end of that race as well because he was running sick correct. for most of the race and then he kind of picked up his pace towards the end there and, and took Arbelino with a few laps to go. So that was encouraging, yeah. But my rider of the race is Pedro Acosta, 17th to 7th. And he had the same exact pace as Vietti for the whole race. It was not that Acosta had tire underneath of him and he ripped off some laps at the end of the race to get close. No, he was as quick the whole time. So my fear... <laughs> that Acosta wasn't going to quite get this all together all figured out was laid down. And I feel more confident in saying that Acosta is going to get there quicker than what I think now. It's his championship challenge there. Anything can happen in 21 rounds, but I do think that it's starting to click with Acosta. Oh yeah. He's had enough time on the ground. The kid is a talent and I was impressed he was able to ride that way up because he did, he rode his way through some very good competition. Guys who are not slouches on Moto2 bikes by any stretch imagination. He beat Lowe's. He beat Arenas. He beat Bobin Schneider. He beat Bobier. He beat Marcel Schroeder. He beat Joe Roberts. All those guys have been at, on or near the podium and he beat all of them. Yeah. So I'm looking for things to come from Pedro Acosta in these next couple of races, especially when we get back to Europe in Puerto Mayo. You know, Texas is going to be another thing probably another learning session for him to get a little bit closer the podium's not out of a question in texas but i'm thinking it's more of a top five for acosta with potential podium if not wins coming at the tracks in spain the things that he knows really well I think as we've said, Jim, with him, it's once he understands better what the limit of that bike is for a one-off single lap, he will qualify better. And then we will see him probably running consistently top six, I would suggest. At the moment, he's crashing too much. He isn't quite getting the qualifying performance in, so he's starting too far back. But his actual race pace, let's call it his slower pace of the weekend, as opposed to hot laps, is actually really brilliant. The three races that he has competed in, he's done exceptionally well. And as you say, that ride on Sunday was first class. So if he can just fix figure out not crashing quite so much and putting in a that, that crucial sort of Q2 qualifying lap to get himself solidly into the top 10, then yeah, I think we will then start to see the Pedro Acosta that we've been expecting to see and possibly like everybody is heaping a bit too much hope and expectation and pressure on him given what a big change of machinery it is. Yep, I agree with all of that. I have one more thing to think about here in Moto2. Why is Aldegar so fast on a Boscacora? He's the only one who seems to be able to make that bike do what he wants to do. And the team has probably worked very hard over the winter to make modifications to improve the weakness that the Bosca Cora had previously. But I do find it amazing that, you know, uh, Fanati, who is on the other Bosca Cora, was 18th. Now, mm. is Aldegar just that much more of a talent than Fanati? Maybe, right? Again, Fabio Quattraro was on a Bosca Cora and he made it look amazing at Barcelona. And I can't remember the other track that he was great on with it. But it does seem like that he has some magic with that motorcycle that other people don't seem to get. And I don't know what he's got, but he does have something, some relationship with that motorcycle that other people don't. So I'm going to be very interested to watch him the rest of the season and see how that develops. 
I think he's just a crazy talent, Jim, to be honest with you. And let's not forget, the guy, well, guy, you know, the young lad is 16 years old. I mean, he was the youngest pole sitter in Moto2 by some margin. I mean, like almost a year younger than anybody else, I believe I heard or read somewhere. So there's that. He hasn't, and again, listeners, correct me if I'm wrong on this, or Jim, I'm sure you will, but I'm pretty sure he hasn't spent any time in Moto3 prior to this. I think he pretty much came from the European Moto2 Championship, so he kind of That's understands correct. the bike as well. Okay, he might not have been on the Boscoscura chassis, but I, I just think he's a crazy talent, you know, and he is riding that bike really well. And, I mean, we've seen in the past, I mean, perhaps it's not t- totally relevant to sort of mention when Sam Lowe's, for example, was on the speed up, but that was the same bike. But we saw that that bike it was really brilliant at certain tracks but most of the tracks it was not very good so the key for Aldegur is going to be can he consistently perform on that bike that most of the tracks that he goes to and if he can do that then we can really say that he is a contender and you know as, as we say a real talent yeah Yes, definitely. He's just that good. And it could be just down to that. He's kind of shaded Acosta for rookie of the year so far. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, we really, nobody really thought that was going to happen, but that is some of the magic that we don't get to follow those European national championships as closely as like the other teams do. And they see this talent. Yeah. We only get to see this talent when it shows up when it hits Moto 3 or wherever, but the kid is got it together. And I look forward to watching more of it and see what it does. Again, like you said, the Bosque Core has been good at different tracks. So hopefully we get to different tracks. We see him at the front. If he is, then the bike and him are gelled and he's good. Yeah. So, so Moto 2 championship real quick. Vietti is on 70 points. Kanet is 21 behind him. Then it's Chantra. And then it's Ayagura, Lowe's, uh, Arbolino, Fernandez, Pedro Acosta, Arenas, and Jake Dixon filling out your top 10. So it's early days as always, but looks like it might be Vietti's championship to lose. He has looked brilliant so far. I do have one thing just to close out on Moto2 actually and that is Celestino Vietti already looking like a sort of a favourite because you know we knew he was good but I don't think he really showed his true colours in Moto3 to be perfectly honest and last year towards the latter part of the year he was starting to come on strong and you were kind of thinking oh 2022 is going to be a good year for him and we rather overlooked him I think a little bit when we were doing our pre-championship predictions the interesting thought that comes into my mind is that this is now going to start causing a problem for VR46 in terms of what do they do with him next year because this is his all-important second year year let's speculate that he wins the championship where does he go because i can't see marina getting booted out of the vr46 moto gp team and bezek is doing wonders on the other side of that garage as we will come to so again this is just strength and depth crazy problems for the progression ladder as these guys go up through the various uh, formulas so yeah vietti is going to be an interesting one and also i'll I'll just put put another one in agura and chantra are going to start causing hrc some head scratching as well because although i think nakagami is on a sticky wicket i'm starting to think that alex marquez might start to come under pressure now because if chantra as you say jim is not a one race wonder not a flash in the pan and he certainly didn't give any any impression on sunday that that was going to be the case because he rode a solid solid race and almost won it or could have won it do we see Aguirre and chantra going up into the lcr squad next year i think that's starting to look like a distinct possibility it's a very distinct possibility i will leave it at this i am glad i am not a team manager yeah (laughs) yeah That's why they get paid the big bucks, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That is very true. Oh, the MotoGP class. Again, this was a crazy qualifying that was there. Peko Benyaya was in the first session. Whoa. Our previous winner, Miguel Oliveira, in that first session. Like, whoa, what the hell? And quite honestly, Peko Benyaya did not have anything to work with. I don't know what was going on with him. The bike setup, you could tell in the first qualifying session, he went out, about lost the back end, didn't like it, fist on the gas tank. You could see him in Miller talking to each other like hey you know da 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 
uh, you know, why is this not fast? Whatever it was, was not working at his team. He got it together. He put in a time that was quick enough, but the problem was that everybody else went quicker. And so Benyaya would start 14th out of Ouch. it. And even Sam, Simon Crayford thought that Oliveira was going to put something together. Then Oliveira never did. Who came out of the first session? It was uh, Nakagami. Yeah, now that first session and um it's so hard to predict what's going to happen in any of these classes yeah. you know it's up and down one weekend to the next isn't it but Banyai, oh, yeah. i mean he lost his beep 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 you know he was oh, absolutely yeah. I've never seen him like that before because he is one of the guys that you generally think of as got his stuff together but he is clearly a very unhappy camper at the moment clearly miller i mean what is going on in the works ducati squad at the moment it's very hard to fathom i've got some ideas yeah. but we'll come to that so my question quickly on this is when does Ducati give Pekka Benya a 2020 bike? Do 20, they give him a 2020 bike? 2021. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Time's a flat circle. <laughs> 2021 bike. When does he get last year's bike? The bike that he won numerous races on the bike that Faso Gristini's team won with. Did they take it back? I mean, are they allowed to do that under the rules? I mean, can they go backwards with chassis like that? I mean, I know there are but, certain parts that the development freezes on, but I suppose it doesn't stop you going back to old stuff because we've seen Marcos doing that with chassis and stuff in the past. But yeah, good question, Jim. I mean, the 2022 bike is looking to be a fickle beast. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It, it remains to be seen. I mean, I've been listening to various podcasts as I do, and the word coming out of the Simon Pattersons and David Emmett's and you know the, the people that are in the paddock and know what's going on is that the 2022 GK has an extraordinarily narrow setup window and you either get it right or you don't and I kind of wonder as well the front shape-shifting device was not present on the bikes in Argentina what effect has that had because that was obviously a fundamental part of that bike when it was on the drawing board so by taking it away has it done something to the overall balance of that bike in terms of weight or whatever that is just causing trouble because the Ducati's the 2022 Ducatis in particular, and particularly the works bikes for some reason, were having terrible problems. Now, I can't think which turn it was. I'm guessing turn 11, that very fast left-hander with a terrible bump. Keith Hewan, who's a very funny commentator on one of the podcasts, said it looked like the bike had various bolts not done up tight enough. It was that kind of flexible coming over those bumps. And he's right. I mean, the, the rear end was all over the place. So, and, and I think this is why Banyai was just kind of losing his mind, particularly as the Saturday went on. I mean, he got himself together on Sunday and actually did quite well, but Saturday was a horror show. Yeah. I Again, there's something going on with that bike. You know, again, if the front ride height device doesn't work and it's a fundamentally integrated part of the motorcycle and it's not working as you wanted it to, then that's a very big problem that Ducati has to solve. And that could be the, the bit of what was going on. However, another man who actually was had the Ducati working well, Jorge Martin. Jorge Martin was just absolutely knocking it out of the park fast and qualifying. He was on pole for a while until, I don't know, there was this other guy with a V4. No, it's not that V4 people. It was a Lace <laughs> Spargaro on an Aprilia who was fast, super fast. I mean, three tenths on everybody and wound up on pole. His first career pole, Aprilia's first career pole in the modern Moto GP yep. era, four strokes. That I said the Aprilia was real, that it was definitely quick bike. I didn't think we'd see it this quick, this fast. You know, you and I talked, we thought about Aragon maybe as a, as a happy hunting ground for them, but it appears as though that that motorcycle and Alesh were in tune in qualifying to 
be on pole ahead of Martin. A big shout out to Marini, who I think he was the other guy who came through the, the first session. Yeah. And that Rossi's team, he nipped Paul Spargaro, who was fourth. That Honda looking decent, although Paul did throw one away earlier in the day, which destroyed it. So he only had the one bike. He was pushing it and he had that big tank slapping wobble that he had going through on one of those laps that was there. Vinales had the Aprilia in fifth. So it wasn't just one person fast on the Aprilia. Both of them were very quick. Quattararo, who basically tried and tried and tried, but was only able to be sixth quickest. And I think we all know, we've said it many times, you've got to be in that top two rows to win the race. And Quattararo was just barely there. But it was one of those, like, Quattro was not happy. The two Suzuki's were shockingly not quick in qualifying. They had pace, but they weren't quick. So I'm not too sure what had happened there. Then it was Zarko, Nakagami, Miller, and then Brad Bender. Didn't have to go through the first session, but didn't produce anything with that KTM, which was bizarre, because I thought KTM would have been really pretty well off this weekend, but... At some point on the Saturday, Jim, and I can't think if it was in one of the free practices or in the qualifying sessions, but you blew the engine, if you remember. Oh, that's right. Yes, he did. And although I can't independently verify this, but again, just sort of anecdotally, one of the pit lane people said that he upshifted rather than downshifted by accident. And so he basically over rev the engine and blew it hmm. so, which is good news in one respect because i think people are thinking all oh, okay i'm going to need to turn their engines down a little bit if they've got a problem but he just overstressed it by putting the gearbox in the wrong direction yeah it can happen quite an odd thing to have happened but that can happen so yeah i mean martin he's just a scruff of the neck rider isn't he we saw this in yeah. often in moto two whereas banyar and miller i think are more precise in their requirements i think probably it's the case that they're not able or willing perhaps to ride around the problems whereas Martin is just taking that bike by the scruff of the neck and just making it work, forcing it to fit, as they say. So I think that's probably the difference at the moment. But certainly our worries about the 2022 Ducati Armada, well, the Armada has sunk at the moment, at least. So it's a question of whether they can get it back on the surface and moving forward, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, what kind of recovery job can they do? Because I think we all agreed Ducati had the best bike. They were going to, they blitzed most of the testing and they were right there. So who knows what's going to happen? But in the race, Leish got off behind Martin and the two of them had, let's just call it what it was. It was a mono mono battle to figure out who was going to get to the win on this one. Martin was riding great. They Leish would go in deep at five and he'd miss up, but he'd bring it all back through the last section, the last sector. And he was very quick through the last sector. Leish was all weekend, very quick. Martin was riding the wheels off of that Ducati. He was using the Ducati power to get out and down the straightaway to kind of get back by him. It became a back and forth kind of a race. And eventually through persistence, nothing more. Aleish had made several big mistakes. Martin had made several mistakes. It was kind of like, well, who's going to make the least amount of mistakes or who could recover from said mistakes? And basically Aleish did the best recovery job because Aleish went on to win. It's their first win in the MotoGP class. What an effort by a very small team to produce a motorcycle that seems to be really good right now. Yeah. At least maybe I would think one of the better V4s. You know, KTM kind of stole the show in the V4s at the beginning, but maybe that really is the actual best one don't know but it does look very solid and capable in the hands of Aleish. Aleish came into it in 2015 it took him seven long years to actually win a race which is the longest time I don't have any more superlatives for Aleish and what he did I was emotional I was so happy for him I, I one of the guys that I think he's worked so hard in the paddock stuck with it stuck with it stuck with it stuck with it and you just were hoping and hoping and hoping he would get somewhere yeah. and he did that unto itself was fantastic he's able to get that so the other part of the race was basically the Suzuki's that came through both Alex Renz and Juan Mir.
Mir came from their late low down starting positions. Renz rode a great race, had great pace, but was not fast as the two guys out front. But he did finish on the podium, so it looked good for Suzuki. He did outshine Mir, which I was surprising. It seems as though Renz has kind of gelled with this new Suzuki maybe a little bit more than Juan Mir. Maybe Juan Mir's eyeing some other kind of a move somewhere else. Although you have to admit that they were sort of corrected a little bit by one place because I think Paul Aspargaro may have been on the podium had he not crashed the Honda. Again, another one of those front-end crashes where it just kind of got away from him. The Honda's better, much, much better. Yeah. (laughs) But he just couldn't keep it together. And to finish first, first you must finish. The thing with Suzuki is, although it kind of feels as if they've disappointed almost, and yet they've been by far and away the most consistent team and they are leading the team's championship. So you know me, Jim. I mean, I'm an avowed Rins fan. I've, I've kept the faith with him and through a torrid year last year. This year he has started to just calm it down a little bit. Clearly helped by a much better bike, a faster bike in the straight line and they got the rear shape shifter working really nicely now as well and he's starting to show his class again and mm. the, I think the problem for Suzuki is that neither Rins or Mir have ever really come across as particular kind of hot lap uh, specialists so perhaps that's part of the problem with their qualifying issues but when you put them in a, on a Sunday they are definitely both Sunday men and now that Rins is keeping it sunny side up as well they're pulling in the points for the team but they're still lacking that little bit aren't they to get to the front at the moment but hopefully as they continue to develop the bike they'll get there that is true Banyaya came in to get fifth. Sort of a lonely race for these guys. Bender was a Saturday man and not a Sunday man, as he was only sixth. Vinales on the other Aprilia was seventh, so showing that the Aprilia is pretty good, I think, there. And giving credence to what we said in the last show, Jim, which was that Vinales had found a setting in the Sunday morning or in the Sunday warm-up at Mandalika, but because the race was wet, he didn't really get a chance to try it out. But he's now saying, certainly following the Argentina weekend, he has a setting on that bike now, so now it's fine-tuned. So it does show that that bike is fast and that if Vinales can start to figure it out, get his elbows out a little bit, then Aprilia are looking really strong, aren't they? And an amazing stat is I think this is now the fifth race in a row where a European factory has won. So the Japanese are going to be starting to get a bit itchy, I would think. Hmm. Interesting statistic. KTM, Ducati and now Aprilia winning races at the end of last year and at the beginning Hmm. of this year. So yeah, it's an interesting little kind of shift in the dynamic in the paddock. That is true. Another interesting stat fact is here nine people have stood on the podium in three races there has not been a person who's been on a podium twice yeah now that's racing some vacuous vapid moron from the f1 fraternity tweeted earlier on that this was proof that moto gp is rigged oh please yeah i mean really jog on <laughs> to watch more motorcycle racing pal this is not rigged okay let's call it a great set of rules (laughs) that have helped to create this situation oh man wow that's just ridiculous now the poor plight of fabio quattraro i don't know that yamaha was definitely not i mean even the quattraro i think you will agree with me is a one lap wonder yeah. If anybody can get the maximum out of a motorcycle for one qualifying lap, it is Quattraro, and he couldn't even do it. He didn't seem somewhat down about it. He seemed like he was okay. I mean, he, he didn't throw the toys out of the pram. He didn't go crazy, that kind of thing. I think he's mentally reconciled himself to the fact that he's got a long year ahead of him, and it's not going to be particularly enjoyable, apart from perhaps the odd moment when things might go in his direction, which will be probably weather or track specific and few and far between, I would suggest. I agree. Uh, yeah, well, 
else you can know, do something. I, I think he need. I think he understands that it's going to be consistency. I think he's looking at the fact that everybody's winning different races and nobody's shown consistency. That maybe he thinks I need points. Let's just get back as many as possible. Wayne Rainey won a lot of championships that way. He was quoted as saying, "You can't win championships finishing eight, which is where he's kind of finishing at the moment. So, I mean, I think he knows what's coming. It's still hard. I mean, there's a lot of racing left to go, but I don't think Quattro will defend his title. Sadly, it's a question of whether your prediction about you know him not winning a race or Yamaha not winning a race is going to come true. I mean, it looks distinctly possible, doesn't it? Yeah. So the last thing I had on this was Divisioso's whole shot device did not release. Can we just ban this stuff, please? Because <laughs> it's really, I'm to the point now where we need to, on safety grounds, cool technology. If it makes you go faster, yes, I agree with it. Go for it. But at some point, this is not like a Formula One car or uh, a uh, endurance racing car or something like that where you're in a cage or a cockpit or a covered fiber surround that protects you and is designed to prevent you from injury. This is a guy on top of a motorcycle with an airbag and a leather suit. And we're going to break collarbones. We're going to start breaking wrists or something like that. Um, but yeah, it was just, again, there was another problem because Vinder had the rear didn't let go correctly in his shapeshifter and Mandalika. Now we get Dovey with the front hull shot device. What's going to happen at Coda, right? I think it was Simon Patterson said that it was actually operator error. He was meant mm. to maneuver a couple of levers into place to activate the, because this was the start line hole shot device, wasn't it? And he just didn't work one of the levers correctly. And so it didn't release. And if you watched him in the pits, they thought it had stuck in position and they were busy trying to bash down on the front suspension to get it to release. And then they realized that they just needed to flick a button or a lever and it just released mechanically of its own accord. So that was yeah. a pretty bad mistake, really, by somebody of Davizioso's experience and caliber. But he's just having a nightmare season. I mean, I wonder how long it's going to go on for, to be honest, because he's getting shown up by Darren Binder, which is nothing against Darren Binder. He's doing an excellent job, but you would have expected more from Andrea Davizioso. And he must now be asking himself why the hell he turned the Aprilia ride down. Yeah, I don't know. Don't know. Let's look at the points. So for all the hard work of Aprilia, they get to lead the world championship of Leish. Leads on 45 points. He's seven ahead of Brad Bender, followed by Bastianini, who's further nine points adrift. Then Rins, Quattraro, Juan Mir, Oliveira, Zarco, Martin, and Paul Spargaro, the top 10 guys. This is going to move around all season. If these first three races are any indication of the kind of racing we're going to get, it is going to be crazy good. Crazy good. Yeah. I thought 2020 was a great season, right? 2021, top that and made that seem even better now this one is just topping that best season ever martin's right it's best season ever the one person who must be quite happy about the present state of affairs is mark marquez because everybody's kind of thinning out the points hall at the top of the table so it's lessening the impact of him not being around assuming he does and can make it back and stay fit and healthy and consistently scoring points himself i put nothing past mark marquez i would not bid against him ripping off like five races in a row yeah, you can't rule him out if he comes back. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it past. Oh, I think that's it, Rich. Uh, we're up against my time stop. Sorry. And, yeah, uh, we gotta get that all done here. And we got another race coming up in a few days as yeah. well. So I gotta get to that race. So <laughs> I, I gotta get a few things packed up in the RV. Uh, we're going. I'm going to Coda. I will be there. If any of you want to get in touch with me at Coda, please contact me at Moto RGV on both Instagram or Twitter. I'll be checking that constantly. You can always email uh, Motopod at Motopodcast.com. I'll pick it up and we can get together, have chat, run cycle racing. We can have a beer whatever it is that we're going to do be great to meet anybody who wants to uh, have a chat with that rich you are on instagram and twitter you are at richard jowett j-o-w-i-t-t for those of you who do not know how to spell it correct is there anything else we need from here i think we need to get out of here because i gotta get driving (laughs) 
I just would like to very, very briefly just direct people to an excellent article in the Motorsport magazine online, which Matt Oxley wrote, which was just giving a potted history of Aprilia's presence in GP racing and what's brought them up to the point where they won on Sunday. It's a great read. I won't go through it now because we haven't got the time. I love the history of the sport, looking from the two-stroke era to their early forays in with the Cube, that wonderful, mad bike, up to, uh, yeah, Lace crossing the line in what was a, just a joyous, again, another joyous event and just showed what a great place the MotoGP paddock is i can't imagine there was a single person in that pit lane that was sad to see him win the race on sunday so just great to see it's fantastic the camaraderie of that pit is quite amazing to be honest yeah Yeah. okay everyone that's the show i will be at coda hopefully we'll have another great race there as always i need all of you to stay out there and ride safe have a great weekend jim oh it's gonna be fun it's gonna (laughs) be great yeah looking forward to hearing (laughs) about it cheers cheers